Lord, we ask as we speak around your word this evening that you be with us, you teach us, you'd encourage us, you would, if necessary, redirect us and shape us, that we might every day be changed into the likeness of the one who called us, um, that we might truly, truly live as apprentices, disciples to Jesus in this vast city that pressures us. Help us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So we're going to... we. Mike read from 1 Peter chapter 5, and so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to pull a few things from there. But I, I think my desire is that over the next season that you'll go back and read this book over and over and over again. It's only five chapters. You can read it in a very short space of time. Did you time it, Brian, at any point? 16 minutes. You can read 1 Peter. Um, it's a really, really helpful book as you get stuck into it in terms of where we find ourselves in the world today. And um, if you want a summary of it, listen to my talk from two weeks ago because I kind of did a summary of the first four chapters in about ten statements. And then you all wondered, why did we actually have to go through all these months of teaching? Um, anyway, that was that. So Brian covered chapter five. I want to somehow pull a few things from there and close the book off. The essence of this book is this. That it's tough to live as a follower of Jesus in a world or a culture that is always becoming hostile to the gospel. That's really what this book is about. It's an old man, Peter, most probably writing from Rome. He's been through a whole lot, maybe just before he gets crucified upside down, as legend tells us. And he writes to a church that's scattered, that's, that's struggling um, under oppression, and he encourages them. That's why it's important for us to read it because we actually find ourselves in that place today. And so when we look at our culture today, the city we live in, the culture that we live in, these are some things I just thought through this morning as I was writing, things that are rampant, that, that are hostile to us living a gospel-centered, faithful, Jesus-following life. Things like individualism. Would you say this individualism in our city? The me is the most important thing in the world doesn't matter what's happening out there as long as I'm okay. It's rampant in our world. Um, and individualism leads to preference. I prefer that over that. I, I really don't like it when they sing those songs. I prefer they sing those songs. I prefer this. I pref it just goes bonkers when individualism takes root in a culture. Now, we celebrate the individual. Because God created us as individuals in his own likeness, in his own image. He gifted us, shaped us all differently, and we celebrate that. But when we add ism to that individual, and it becomes a cult of me, we worship at the, the, the altar of I, me, my, myself, there's, there's something that goes totally wonky there. And as much as we try and resist it, as much as we try to fight it, it's, it's evidenced in our own community. It's evidenced in my own life. I must probably speak about it the most in our church, and it's evidenced in my life. It's evidenced more since I moved here, because the city has a spirit over it of individualism, and we have to find ways to resist that um, if we truly want to be the people that Jesus wants us to be into this culture. Enough said on that one. The second thing that is rampant is syncretism. You know what that word means? It means the blending of ideas and faith and religion. Take a bit from Christianity, a bit from Buddhism, a bit from here, a bit from there, a bit from everywhere. We meld it together, and we create our own sort of religion. Trouble is the churches are filled with people who are syncretistic. You've just blended things. 
As someone once said, we always said that the United States was sort of a Christian culture. Actually, it's actually more Hindu, to be quite honest. And I've said this a number of times that I'll explain myself. In a Hindu culture, if you go to, if you go to India, anyone been to India? A few of us. If you go to India, they have 30 to 300 million gods. You can be a god. I can be a god. Anybody can be a god. And that's all okay. The problem arises when you choose one of those 300 million and make them the only God. Now you have a problem. So the moment someone gets baptized in India, and you've heard me say this a dozen times, you are declaring that the one God is the true God, and now you're in deep trouble. You're ostracized from family, you lose your job, kicked out of your village, all sorts of things happen when you declare one God to be above the other 2,999,000, whatever, how many that is. That's what happens here. If you want to be a Christian in LA, great. If you want to be a Buddhist, wonderful. You want to be a zip-zop, fantastic. You can be anything you like. The moment you say that Jesus is the only way, the only true God, then what? You're closed-minded, you're narrow-minded, you're a bigot, you're this, you're that, you're that, blah, 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 blah. It goes on and on and on. Because why? Because we've said, no, there is a way. And by saying that, we're saying, your way's not the right way. And that's offensive in our culture. So to be a Jesus-following person in our culture is really, really difficult. And we have to have great wisdom and insight in how to navigate that in the way that we live. Sometimes it's really easy to not declare Jesus as Lord so that life goes well. But I kind of, when you read the book, it kind of pushes the opposite. But it's something we have to deal with. Syncretism. It's a blending. I choose a bit of this, a bit of that. Now, I really like following Jesus, but you know, I'm really into reincarnation. So that's cool. No, they don't blend. They don't go together. I really like Jesus. But man, I, I'm really caught up with whoever else, Buddha as well, who's not a god. There's no god in Buddhism. We just blend things. So, so there's a challenge to us. And it's, it's a change over the, over the years. It's, it's changed. We have to think through that. How, what does that look like for us? There's rampant entertainment and production that has crept into the church. So we have... Church has become a concert, a show, something we go and we spectate and we enjoy what is happening up there, and then we leave and say, wasn't that a great time? But have we participated? Now, here's the sad thing. We also have crept into that, because we don't participate as much as we should, and a lot of that's down on me because I lead the darn thing. But we need to participate more because that's what the body does. The hands and the feet and the knees and the elbows and the wrists don't just watch the eyes blinking and the mouth speaking. They participate in making the body the body. And we need to participate. We can't, we've got to break out of an entertainment spectator production type of thinking. This is not a business. This is the church. This is a family. That's the number one sort of metaphor that's used of the church is a family. God, our Father. It's a family. So we have to look, what does it mean to operate like a family? You can think through that. Rampant commercialization and branding. 
Think through that in church. There are millions and millions and millions and millions and millions of dollars spent annually by the church on branding and things like that. So if you don't do that, you're actually out of the game. I, I kind of like being out of the game, if that's all right. We've got to think through that. What, how does that affect us? Busy lifestyles. I mean, anyone here just easing off every day? Just chilling out. No, we're all busy. Life is squeezing us. At every level, life is squeezing us. But we have to think through that. Well, what does it mean for us to be a follower of Jesus in such a city that's squeezing us at every angle? Linda and I joked in our first few years here, you wake up in the morning and you're exhausted before you even started anything. Because there's a pressure in the city that's over us. We've got to think through that when we think about what does it mean to be a follower of Jesus. Competition. It's rampant in our culture. It's rampant in the church. There's competition for thought and belief. There's competition for the way that we practice. Everybody's vying for the same group of people. There was that book that was written 15 years ago called Red Ocean, Blue Ocean. Anyone read that book? Business book? And we all go for the red ocean. We're all fishing in the same pool. And so what we see in the church is people move from this church to that church to that church to that church. And their reason for their moving is tied to branding and competition and all those things. Oh, their worship's better. Their teaching's better. Their kids' ministry's better. This is better. So we just move. But there's this vast blue ocean of people who don't know Jesus who are going nowhere, let's go fish there. You know, there's a, the majority of the people in Los Angeles, I'm guessing, don't give a whatever about kids' ministry. They never think about it. If you told them you come into church and all your kids will sit in the pews with you, oh, okay, because they don't know any difference. You think, no, but this is America. I met with a girl this week, 24 years old, that was not raised in the church and knows Zippo about anything. There's a whole blue ocean that we need to go fishing. We don't have to compete with anybody else, anything. All we have is Jesus and the good news of what he has done and how he loves the world and just present it. We've got to think through that as well. We've got to think through the fragility of our culture. I've lived longer than most of you, except for my Betsy. If you don't back me up on this, I'm going to be really in trouble. But you know, as time has gone on, we as people have become more fragile. We're not as hardy as we used to be. We, we get offended very quickly. We break very quickly. We happily sever relationships without thinking. We are a fragile culture. And we, we have to think that through in the light of the gospel of Jesus. When it says love one another, care for one another, kick one another in the butt. You know, all those verses... And we don't take offense with one another. We've got to think through that. 
If we're going to be the church in a culture that is fragmented and fragile, we've got to think that through. Because if we go fish blue into the blue ocean and we, a whole lot of people come in, they're going to be fragile. We've got to add them into a life that's more robust and help them to grow in Jesus in that way. There's rampant skepticism around faith and around all sorts of things. we just got to work through that and think through, what does that mean? I'm not giving you lots of answers to anything. I'm just pointing out a whole lot of things here. One that's tragic is that there's rampant biblical illiteracy. There's more podcasts and teaching than there ever has been in the history of humanity put together. And we are biblically illiterate. And when we are biblically illiterate, we actually have no foundation to anchor ourselves in with Jesus. And so we listen to this podcast. Did you hear what that guy said? You read this. Did you hear what that guy said? And we just, but we, we, we are not a f- familiar with the source material, so we don't know whether they are right or wrong, or whether we agree or disagree. We just, oh, that sounds good. There was a survey done many years ago. Uh, I think it was by the Barna Group, but I might be wrong. And the most favorite text that people loved was God helps those who help themselves. But that's, that's tragic. It's not even in the Bible. But yet that was the verse that people would hang on to. Even more than for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son. We are biblically literate. And, and so if, we, if we're going to be a people that live in a culture that's fragile and syncretistic and individualistic and commercialized and whatever... We have to ground ourselves in something. Otherwise, we will just go with the flow of that ocean. We'll just be swept here and there, double-minded in all we do, unstable. One of the writers speaks about the church. We have to think through those things. I'm not giving you the answers. We have to wrestle them. And I think we could think of a lot of other things. I believe chapter 5... And I'm not going to read it again. Brian covered it last week. Mike read it now. Has five thoughts, five factors, five ideas, I think, that could help us to be the church, to live as the church the best we can in such a culture. Is that all right? So you're taking notes? You've got your phone out making notes, a pen? Do anybody know what a pen is? All right. I'm teasing. Number one. That we're part of community that has godly leadership over it. Um, part of the problem with our culture is that we have families that have no leadership over it. Fra- families are fragile and fragmented, are they not? What, I don't know what the percentage is. Now, nearly 50% of families in, the, in, in Los Angeles are single-parent families. But it is what it is currently. So... If we want to live Jesus' life, we, we need to take heed of what this old man Peter is writing. And he says, you need leaders that you can follow and submit to, but be careful, they need to be leaders that look like Jesus. 
Currently, Brian and I are the elders in this church. If we do not look something like Jesus would want us to look, please would you run fast. Get out of here. Go find another place. Run, run, run. Because you do not want to be under that kind of leadership. You want to be under leadership that hopefully is drawing you into the presence of Jesus, that's presenting Jesus to you in a wonderful, wonderful way, that, that our lives are starting to look like Jesus, even if a little bit, and we're growing in it. A flock needs a shepherd. And P Peter writing here says, no, he is the great shepherd, but under that great shepherd are under shepherds that help lead the flock. So this is a little flock within the greater flock that Jesus leads. And the prayer and the hope is that we are one step ahead. Not above or below, ahead in leading us into what God has for us. That there's someone you can trust. Oh, maybe they're thinking through some of the things. I could maybe ask them some questions about some of these things. Or they would direct me to the right place to ask some of those questions so that we can grow and move forward. Leadership is not above the flock. It's not below the flock. It's in front of the flock, leading the flock into the everything that Jesus has. The best that we know how. God created it like that. Just like he created family. That's why I love Psalm 23 so much. That's why I did it every single day with Busby. Because it's powerful. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. Let's go through that. I still do that daily as best I know how. Second factor is humility. God gives grace to the humble and he resists the proud. And then you get the pearl of great price. Humility. I don't believe you can submit well to what God has without being a humble person. Because submission, if you are arrogant and proud, it's hard to submit. Remember, submission is not something demanded. Submission is something offered. And you offer it. You don't, no one's asking you, you better submit to me. No, no just offer it because it's God's way. But it comes out of a place of being humble. And Jesus was a humble person. Was he not? Just humble. Doesn't, didn't make him weak. Didn't make him a wuss. But he was humble. Humble is this understanding of where my source of power is, where my authority is resting, who I belong to, who am I serving, etc., etc., in the Pentateuch, it's, I don't know what book it is, it says of Moses, the most humble man on the face of the earth. Supposedly, he wrote that. Humility's got nothing to do with weakness. Moses was a strong, strong leader. But he was the leader that got in front and said, no, I'd rather kill me than them. That's how much he loved the people. Other times he said, kill them. Humility. God gives grace to the humble. I think if we're going to move forward as we, in, as we intersect with our culture through all these different places, if we come in arrogant and we come in harsh, you know, I think we lose the, the thing before we even start. We come in humble, gentle, 
wise, but humble. And I believe there's a grace that is poured out in humility that is not poured out any other way. God gives grace to the humble. If you would trust Jesus and let him lead and let him direct you and you'd seek him for direction in all sorts of areas because I believe he's the smartest person who ever lived, Jesus. I think he knows everything about everything. If you are humble and trust that, I believe that he will pour out a grace upon you that's unusual. Is that right? If Brian and I become arrogant, whack us on the head. Or whack me, I can't speak for Brian. Number one, submit and follow leaders who you can trust that they're growing to be like Jesus. Number two, humility. Number three, be alert. Don't be dulled by the culture. Don't just enter your day saying, oh, it's another day, and I'll just go about my business, and at the end of the day, I will come home and eat my dinner and play with the kids and go to bed. Ugh. Don't do that. Be alert. Wake up. Lord, I'm ready for today. Take a minute. You can do it while you're brushing your teeth, while whatever. Just a minute. I want to be alert today. I want to be of sound mind today. Lord, there's a lot coming my way today. I want to be aware of what it is and just not fall into the traps. Be alert because there is an enemy and he's out to get you and he'll use any method that he can think of to undermine your faith and who you are in Jesus. He's prowling, looking. So be alert. And you can only, and it, it, we have to resist. But you can only resist that which you're aware of. Isn't that right? If you're not aware that there's anything to resist, what are you resisting? But if you realize that there's an enemy that's undermining you and that you are alert and on full, you know, everything open, you can then resist and say, no, I'm not going to do that. If you do that as an individual, you'll have some success. If you do that out of the space of God's people, you've got more chance of succeeding because you've got fallback. a wonderful place in that to trust your leaders that maybe they can also be alert to things I say this without, I hope it doesn't sound I most probably pray for some of you more than you pray for yourselves encouragement is that you pray encouragement, I want to pray more too because I want to pray for you, that's what a shepherd should do isn't it? Isn't that what the great shepherd is doing? Sitting at the right hand of the Father, interceding on our behalf. Isn't that what he's doing? Then there's under shepherds that what we should be doing too. But that doesn't negate you from praying and being alert as you enter into your day. Number four, you are not alone. You can choose to be if you want to, but you are not alone. You're in a fault, in a fault, in a fight with a multitude of of brothers and sisters around the world that are in the same fight and we are doing it together. One of the wonderful things about now going to Dubai, I got back on Monday, was meeting with 
fellow believers from Sri Lanka and India and Pakistan, Zimbabwe, Mozambique, Malawi, those three sort of more, those countries, where life is tough, and yet there's a great joy about the gospel. We've got brothers and sisters all over that are, are in this. And we're doing it together for the sake of Jesus. So you're not alone. Not only do you have this, brothers and sisters, but you also have God on your side. The Great Commission is, I am with you. Jesus incarnating is God Emmanuel, God with us. So number one, submit, follow leaders in community. Two, humility. Three, be alert. Four, you're not alone. Five, remember there is a day coming when everything will be made right. And Jesus will come back and restore all things when the fullness of eternity will begin. But that fullness of eternity is, is very dependent upon this part of it, where we live right now. Please don't live your life thinking, oh, I, I, one day, I'll, you know, I'll be with Jesus. It'll all be sorted out. No, this actually this life counts. We have this living hope because of the resurrection of Jesus, and we've touched on that so often, I won't say it again, but we have to rely on that and live in that, on that there's a day coming. We can live with confidence and we can live through hardship and we can live through things where we try and we fail and it's okay knowing that a day is coming when God will make it all right. That's what he's talking about at the end of chapter 5. Five things I think can help us from this chapter. He ends this with saying, we need to stand fast in the grace of God. What does stand fast mean? How do you stand fast? Do you th have you thought through that idea? I'm, stand I'm standing fast. Standing fast now as I plonk myself down. Come on. Give it your best shot. You know, when you see the, the, the line go down ready in football, they set themselves. We need to live like that. Stand fast in the grace of God, not in your own strength. In the grace of God. And trust, let, let his peace be upon you. I'm in this fight. It's going to be hard. I've set myself down. Let the peace come. And then away you go. I remember watching a movie 40 years ago, maybe about a guy in um, boot camp in the military. And he was sort of one of these mystics type of a guy. And he, he, wouldn't, he didn't play the game well, and they'd always try to punish him. So they would give him these buckets of water to hold. Now, I've been in the military, I know they made us do all these stupid things. And he would stand there, and he would go into his Zen pose, kind of, and just stand. He said himself, oh, Peace. Just hold the buckets. And it drive the drill sergeants insane. But it's a wonderful picture of us entering our world, entering our culture, saying, I'm going to set myself. Here I am. 
I'm at peace. Where you go? That all this happening around you, you can live in peace. I, I kind of want to promise you, I think I can promise you, if you begin to live like that and you trust Jesus, the Holy Spirit flowing through you like that, and that there's humility, you're not, you're not saying, oh, look how strong I am. No, I'm just trying. People will be drawn to you. Why? Because in essence, everybody's trying to find peace, and they can't. But if you go try and whack them over the head with the Bible, tell them Jesus loves them, and if they don't respond, they're going to hell type of thing like we used to do 40 years ago, it's not going to work. But if your lifestyle, your lifestyle is joyous and peaceful and humble and gracious and kind, and you know what you believe, and you can say yes and no clearly, it's attractive. Before I give you my two favorite verses from this in our closing, we've done well. We've only been going an hour since we started. Eh? It's amazing. Just so you don't get confused by Babylon in this verse. She who is in Babylon, chosen together with you, sends greetings. Babylon is a metaphor. One of two things. It could be Rome, where um, Peter's writing from, and it began to be known as Babylon, the evil city, whatever. It also... Uh, just speaks about the Roman culture, Roman Empire that was crushing in on the church and where the church was spread throughout that empire. So just so you know that word, it's not, not physical Babylon in Persia. Not speaking about that, it's a bigger picture. So now, is this a, has this been okay? Have you got something to work with, something to hold on to, hopefully something you can begin to practice? Um, when Jesus speaks at the end of Matthew chapter 7, he's blessed the man who a person that hears these words of mine and puts them into practice. That's a wise person who builds house upon a rock when the storms come that don't fall down. You've got to put it into practice. It takes time, but it's okay. But I'm going to give you my two favorite verses from 1 Peter because I love them. Just Do you know any of them, Brian, do you think? Yeah. yeah I bet you'll guess one. I bet you'll guess one. Yeah, I guess. <laughs> Bingo. He knows. But you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession. This is writing to the church. That you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Isn't that beautiful? My other favorite verse in there is chapter 3, verse 15. It says this, But in your hearts revere Christ as Lord. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. And then this little bit that's added on. But do this with gentleness and respect. We're not out to get anybody. We're not out to bash anybody. We're out to give an answer when they have a question. Don't give an answer if they're not asking you a question. 
when they ask, give, and when they reject the answer, doesn't matter. Be gentle, be kind, be humble. It's okay. Those are my two favorite verses.